The first eight verses of 1 Samuel chapter 24. Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Injidai. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in the front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose... And he cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, because the Lord, uh, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and he prostrated himself. Good to be together. I was just, it's good to see Arnie walking around. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm just thinking it's encouraging to be together with all of you. I, I find, I'm sure all of us do, right? Find great encouragement as we are able to be together. And I, Paul reminded us in our Sunday school class, and as JD spoke, just, I don't know about you, but I, I take for granted that we can do this, that we can come and we can sing and we can give and we can pray together and we can study the word and we can own a bible but we're thankful to many who gave their lives that that could be the case and of course we're thankful to the lord that we have that opportunity let's not take it for granted even every week as we're able to come together well as you know we are doing a flyover of the old testament an overview and as we do that we're we're learning about God in a general way and we're hopefully learning more about ourselves and we're, we're drawing out lessons along the way. We're missing a lot of information. Let me remind you of that. Hopefully you're able to read a little bit on your own. And we're missing a lot of lessons because we don't have the time for all of them. But we, we're gaining a broader knowledge, I hope, of the Old Testament and um, seeing the, the pieces of the story as we follow God's nation, Israel. And remember, other things are going on in the world, but we are following the story of the Bible and as God works with Israel and various people in, in Israel specifically. And we're in 1 Samuel. We, 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 we broke it down last week um, into three parts. And those three parts, basically, just for the fun of it, there's other ways you could break it down, but we, those three parts you can see here follow the, the three, or follow main characters 
in the book. We looked at the first two last week, and we will look at the third one today. Um, We saw Samuel. He grew up in the temple after Hannah gave him back as a young child to grow up in the temple. And God raised him up as a judge, a prophet, and a priest in this kind of transitionary time for the nation. And he was really a guiding light and a point of security during those years. The people, if you remember, demanded a king and from Samuel, from God. And Saul, the Benjamite, was appointed Israel's first king. Though God hadn't forbidden a king, we noticed that they really didn't wait on him, at least as I see it. Their timing was wrong and their motive was off. Saul started out good, but his true colors began to show there toward the end of our, our, our study last week. And several times even now up to this juncture, we saw Saul make foolish choices. He directly disobeyed God. And we noticed Samuel's strong words as he reminded Saul, and I think he reminds all of us, that obedience to God is much better than burnt offering. Obedience is better than sacrifice. What we're talking about there is a love for God, a trust in Him, a heart of sincerity and humility that we want to submit to Him. Do we have that in our lives? An attentiveness to His Word. Is that my heart's desire? On the other hand, sacrifice, that burnt offering that Saul jumped toward, we're talking about maybe duties, rules, laws, looking right, saying the right things, even perhaps doing what is called for, but that doesn't equal godliness. That's not a love for God at the core. So let's check ourselves by those words of Samuel. Hopefully we've been able to do that. Let's ask the Lord to meet us as we continue then into the third section. So God, thank you for this opportunity. We really are grateful that we can meet together, that we can come because of your sacrifice because of the freedom we find in Christ and then we especially have great opportunity because of the freedom we have based upon the many lives given in our history God thank you for this book of first Samuel and the chance to be in it in a brief sort of way I pray God that you would meet us that you would help us to learn and that you would encourage our hearts toward growth in you. In Jesus' name, amen. In this third section, David and Saul are primary story characters. We're going to find that out. There's others, of course. But let's launch the plane and fly over these really action-packed chapters. This is a very much of a narrative, a storyline. So you can turn to chapter 16, if you're not there already, of 1 Samuel. And again, we're going to flip the pages fairly quickly, all the way through 31 this morning. God tells Samuel in the first verse of chapter 16, he says, I have selected, or, or literally he says, I have seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons. You can compare that back to in verse 22 of chapter 8 when God says to Samuel about Saul. There he says, appoint a king for them. There's a difference, isn't there, between seeing a man and just appointing a man. Remember, David 
was God sought David based upon what? He calls him a man after his own heart. That's in chapter 13. That would be the ruler, the replacement for Saul over Israel. Now, what does it mean to be after my own heart? I've always wondered about that. I want to be that person. I hope you do. What does that mean? That, you, could, you could do a lot of study on that. We're not going to do that today, but we know that that, by way of encouragement, is not sinlessness. Perhaps it has more to do with humility, with a mind that delights in God, that desires God. David himself wrote later in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a pure heart. That might be pointing in the right direction as we think about a man after God's own heart. But moving on, Samuel had to act in faith now as God told him to go anoint this um, new king against a fear of Saul. Saul's still on the throne. That's usually a bit dangerous to anoint a new king when there's already one ruling. Well, even the community in, is on edge there in Bethlehem as, as Samuel shows up. They don't know if he's coming in peace or not. Um, Remember, Bethlehem is the city of David. That's where we're at. Now, David is the last. He's the lowest. He's the least likely of Jesse's sons. In fact, he wasn't even invited by his father to this, this feast, to, be, um, to the anointing feast where, Jess, where uh, Samuel would choose a, a new king. David was out in the field shepherding. That's really an undesired position. We save that for the lowest, for the youngest brother. If you're the youngest brother, I'm sorry, but that would have been you. Samuel is chastised by God now. Look at this. God chastises him when he judges. Samuel judges the kingly standard by tall and handsome. And the Lord reminds Samuel that what? He looks at the heart. And then for some reason, the author points out that David had beautiful eyes, healthy and handsome appearance. Well... According to the next text, though, that's not why God chose him. And God can empower all of us. It doesn't matter what you look like. God looks at the heart. He knows each of our hearts. In the latter part of the chapter, we learn, we're in 16, that an evil spirit took the place of the Holy Spirit resting on Saul. Now, what is going on there? I don't know, actually, entirely, but we do know that in this Old Testament picture, God is not in competition for power. He is the only power. And we find now that David eventually enters Saul's employment as a musician to comfort him in this mental torment of this evil spirit. Now in 16 verse 18, David is described and he's called a musician, a valiant warrior, handsome, and the Lord was with him. But David doesn't know how to be king. He might be a pretty good shepherd. But God gets him into the palace. And even though, or even, even through Saul's paranoia, that's how he gets him in there. Saul doesn't know it yet, but David is now training to be his replacement in exposure and experience. So as we move to chapter 17, you know this story. You ever heard of First Samuel 17? Anybody heard of Goliath? Who goes with Goliath? David. Goliath was a man a Philistine from Gath. I'm forgetting my slides. Goliath was a big man. He was even bigger than Saul. If you remember, Saul was a big man, but Goliath was probably about in the range of nine foot nine inches tall. 
His armor, his weapons are described here. We're to understand him as a formidable foe. You know this story. We don't need to spend much time on it. But Saul and his army are intimidated by his appearance as well as his taunts. And then we remember, though, God doesn't look on the outward appearance, does he? He looks on the heart. And David happens to be coming by as a messenger, a messenger boy and witnesses Goliath. And we know David, but empowered, it says right here, empowered by the Holy Spirit or by the Spirit of the Lord that rested on him from chapter 16. He says essentially to Saul and his older brother, Eliab, Eliab there, he says, your ways are not my ways, your ways are not God's ways. That's not what he says, but that's the, the idea. David then is successful with a skill he knew, and he defeats and kills Goliath. And he wins the war, actually, in that one move. A courageous teenager, empowered by God, used by God. Well, as we move to chapter 18, this famous defeat of the giant, David is now known. It doesn't, it doesn't make that really obvious, but David is, is more than just a no-name servant of Saul. He's introduced to Saul's family. Probably a good portion of the nation knows this young man now. And here in chapter 18, you see a, a sweet, devoted friendship between Saul's son, Jonathan, the prince, and David. It says that Jonathan made a covenant of friendship with David because he loved him as himself. And then in chapter 20, he loved him as his own life. It's a loving, committed friendship. They, they're fast friends, if you will. Now, I just as a, as a side maybe, but our culture, I think, would like us to tell us that Friendship between these two men has overtones of homosexuality. Actually, I think the culture would like to tell us that any good, strong, same-sex friendship cannot exist without gay tendencies. I'd like to fight against that, actually, and say that that is not so. There's a caring commitment that, that exists. There's others-centered love that can be very deep and binding in a healthy friendship. I think that's what we're seeing here. Bonds of brotherly love. It's not to be mixed with sexuality. Well, Jonathan, at some point along the line, I'm still getting behind, uh, he understands, he understood God's plan. He submitted to God's plan for David. And he, he understands that David will be the next king. He gave up his right, most likely, to the throne as Saul's son for David. We're still in chapter 18, and Saul begins now to suspect David as a traitor. Remember that song that the women sang about him, about their exploits in battle. David, or Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Perhaps the song was not literal. After all, wouldn't it be rather foolish for the women to publicly honor David ten times higher than the existing king? And did David actually kill tens of thousands? It's probably poetic. But notice that Saul misses that. He's on edge. He's jealous. He can't stand anyone upstaging him. And Saul attempts then some strategies for getting rid of David. First, it's pin the spear on the musician, and 
he tried to pin David to the wall. That didn't work. And then militarily, he makes him a commander of a military unit, hoping, him, hoping to get him killed. David represents the king in battle uh, in order that he would marry one of Saul's daughters as a reward. And finally, David pursues 200 Philistines as a dowry for marrying another daughter. Uh, well, David survives all this. What do you know? And in chapter 18, verse 29, the end of the chapter, it says, Saul was afraid of David and was his enemy continually. Well, chapter 19, now Saul is less covert in his desire and active pursuit of David. You see that Jonathan saves David at one point, and then his wife Michael saves David at another point. And eventually David runs to Samuel, and Saul openly pursues him to kill him. In chapter 20, David flees back to Jonathan, away from Saul. And at this point, Jonathan comes up with a test to be sure whether Saul truly hates David or not. Now, I think David's pretty sure that Saul hates him. He's been running, right? I don't know if Jonathan is a peacemaker, an optimist here, whatever it is, but Jonathan carries out this test and Saul flares in anger at his son. He curses his son because of David. And then he tries to kill his son, Jonathan. Saul's character, pretty obvious, it continues to come forth. And it's also handy that he's no good with his spear. He keeps missing these people. But Finally, Jonathan and David meet. There's Jonathan there wishes David peace, something he doesn't know much about here for this period of his life. It's an emotional scene, though, as they, as they connect in friendship. There's open weeping. Well, in chapter 21, then, we're cruising on through. David, while try, he, he's trying to evade Saul now, it's pretty clear that um, there's a great threat. He goes to a priest in a city named Nob. That's not the fellowship hall, for those of you that call that. But, and then he, he runs to Gath, which is a Philistine city. And Psalm 34, verse 8, says this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy is the person who takes refuge in him. That verse, along with the rest of the psalm, was written when David was in Gath and running during these times. Especially that insanity there that he, he, he feigned for the king of, of Philistia. Well, David is on the run and... Actually, the rest of this book, the rest of 1 Samuel, details David's desperate evasion of Saul and God's continual protection upon David. From the time David was anointed to the time he became king after Saul's death was 14 years or so. So for the better part of those 14 years, David's life was in danger. And it was during these years that many of the Davidic Psalms Many of our psalms that we have in our scriptures were penned, perhaps in a cave by candlelight, in the wilderness with an eye peeled toward the north, watching for Saul's army. David wrote some of these wonderful psalms that we have. Some of the best songs and psalms have been written during the worst and hardest times. By chapter 22, David is fully on the run from Saul. And 
There's no hesitation anymore on Saul's part. It's all out. Kill David. David flees to a place called Adullam. And I'm probably saying all these wrong too, JD, but we'll just throw them out there. This place is southwest of Bethlehem. He's running now. And we notice that a band of castaways, others in trouble, or somehow, somehow probably on the outs with Saul, like David, join him, as well as his family who would be in danger from Saul. So he's got a little band of, of people here now. It's interesting to notice throughout these chapters that people seem to like, or the word love is used, of David. They come to David, unlike Saul. It's almost the opposite with him. And I think you could say as you think about these times of David where he's, he's one step ahead of Saul. Death is almost imminent, it seems like. And now he's, now he's got responsibility with this, this following. These are days David won't forget when he is one day king. This is... This is the time of character development. This is a time, this is schooling in some way. So David is, is fleeing. He's, he's only one step ahead of the king of the land. He's got the military of, of Israel on his tail. He has no home, no provision, no security. And like I said, now he's responsible for others. Interestingly, you notice that David takes, we're in chapter 22, David takes his band now, particularly his aging parents, to the land of Moab. Remember Moab? They're going there for protection. Usually Moab's an enemy. This is one of the few times it's kind of spoken of more favorably. Of course, this is the land where David's great-grandmother came from, Ruth. Now, toward the end of the chapter, again, Saul, in a mad rage, murders 85 priests of Nob for siding with David. That's a story we didn't talk about too much there, but Saul is a problem. We come to chapter 23, and David and his party end up delivering a place called Keilah from Philistia, a small town. They go, and, and they, under God's direction, they, they deliver this little city, then we see them running to the wilderness of Ziph. You might be able to see it there on the, the left side, the west side of the, the Dead Sea. They're moving south. They're, they're moving into an area that's less populated, more desert, very, very desert-like. So that you've got a cat and mouse game going on, essentially. Both Saul and David have human informants. You read throughout their, these scriptures that it was told Saul this, or David heard that. But it is interesting that unlike Saul, David had divine information. God spoke to David. God didn't speak to Saul anymore. And one last time here in chapter 23, Jonathan comes and finds David. And he speaks to him, and it says he encourages him in the Lord, or in God. And then, toward the end of the chapter, Saul almost catches David. He's right there, and he has to abandon the chase to go defend his land from the Philistines. Right at the end, well, maybe, possibly, divine preservation might be involved. Chapter 24, David, he has temporary relief now that Saul has to run and he runs to a place called Engidai. I said it wrong didn't I? Sounds good. 
I don't know how to say it, but and it doesn't matter so much how we say it, but again, that's a place right next to the Dead Sea, uh, a mountainous area with apparently a lot of caves. This would be just north of a place later that you might have heard of called Masada. And so they're, they're down there in the desert. They're in this mountainous, cavernous area. And we don't know how that battle with the Philistines went that Saul ran off to, but we do know that Saul is back after David at first chance and Saul almost humorously answers the call of nature. He uses the bathroom in the very cave that David and his crew are hiding out in. While Saul is relieving himself, David sneaks up and cuts off the corner of his garment. Now, you, you notice that Saul, as he gets word of this, he seems to have a change of heart. He finds out, he, 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 he speaks, he admits but then reconciliation doesn't take place, does it? Second Corinthians 7 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief or world, worldly regret produces death. I'm not sure we're really seeing repentance here. Well, finally we see that the, the great prophet, priest, and judge Samuel dies. This is chapter 25, and, and all Israel, it says, mourned his death. Now the rest of that chapter, that's just mentioned briefly, and then the rest of that chapter is um, moving the narrative, or excuse me, it takes a break from moving the narrative forward, and we, we get just a, a glimpse of a, an interesting story that at some point during these wanderings in the desert, these runnings from Saul, it's in the wilderness of Moan, it says, um, David and his crew apparently had provided protection in some way, shape, or form for the flocks of a man, a wealthy man named Nabal. Well, this was a great asset to this man, Nabal, but the man refused to help David in his need. David had a need for provision. He was always looking for food. And David was actually about to take revenge on Nabal because of his refusal when when Nabal's wise wife, Abigail, stepped in as a peacemaker and saved David from bloodshed. You probably know that story. It turns out Nabal ended up dying. Abigail becomes David's third wife, I believe. After this kind of interlude here in chapter 25, we see Saul is back at it now with 3,000 choice men choice warriors from the military to do away with David, David in chapter 26. They're now in the wilderness of Ziph again, west of the Dead Sea by a little bit. And for the second time, Saul camps for the night. He's sleeping and David enters the camp and takes Saul's spear and water jug that are right next to him and sneaks out of the camp during the night. And as soon as he gets out, he, he hollers back to him, whatever. They have an exchange of words. And again, Saul seems to repent. He says, I have sinned. I'll never do it again. Sounds a little bit like the words of Pharaoh. Remember him? Only to harden his heart a few hours later. But they never reconcile. They go their separate ways. And I wonder, you know, admitting sin is a good thing, but that's a world away from repentance, from true change, from true heart and life change. 
David doesn't trust Saul. We find that out as we're looking as we move on into chapter 27 and and you see David here talking to himself about his options. He's getting tired of running through the desert. And he's thinking that it's only a matter of time before Saul catches up, before Saul gets him. So he ends up going to enemy land for refuge. We find him then in a small town named Ziklag, south of the the big, bigger city of Gath, Philistia city. Gath, of course, is the hometown of the now dead Goliath. And King Achish is the ruler here of the Philistines. And I think one, one should wonder about the wisdom of David's move here, about his faith in God. David makes a statement there. He says, I will leave this land. This is David's land. But we, you can process that. Now remember, I think I said last week that war with the Philistines was going to be a constant during Saul's lifetime. We've seen a lot of it. In chapter 28, we're back at it. Philistia gets up and goes out against Israel. Now, as we think about King Saul, we've seen some of the stages of Saul's falling away from the Lord. One of the first, one, first ones was when he arrogantly functioned as priest. He wasn't the priest. Then there was the disobedience with Amalek, not wiping them out as God had told him, not carrying out God's command. We saw those last week in the first part of the book. Even though God had chosen David to be the next king, Saul knew that, but God didn't, or Saul didn't submit to God's will in that, and Finally, here is the last step away from God. Saul turns to the occult, the demonic, to a witch in Endor for guidance. Samuel's gone. Saul would go to Samuel for guidance. Samuel's dead. God wouldn't talk to him. Saul is panic-stricken, I think, with the Philistines pressuring him. And he wants someone to tell him what to do. You know, if you remember, courage was there long ago in Saul, but it's been replaced by fear. So Saul turns to necromancy, consorting with the dead, if that's actually a thing. And by Saul's own law, the Torah, the law of Moses, those who practice this, consorting with the dead, should be killed. The witch, in other words, should be wiped off the land. And it tells Israel to avoid it, to avoid this practice. Well, obviously Saul's in a bad place here. And I haven't done a whole lot of research on this passage and what is actually going on here, but we do know that evil, opposition to Yahweh, is at the core of it. And Samuel, though dead, still has existence in some way and He gives a message of doom to Saul. He says, by tomorrow you will be with me in the throes of the dead. So in chapter 29, Philistines come out to fight Israel. Remember, David is with the Philistines at this point. And we wonder about his allegiance to Achish of Philistia. And Achish is pretty convinced of David's allegiance. He's pretty sure that David is loyal to him, even against his own people, the Hebrews. But the Philistine commanders get their way, and and to David's relief, no doubt, although he seems offended, but he is let go from fighting against his own people, the Hebrews. 
So David goes back to his little village there in Ziklag. And on the return, they, they, they realize in chapter 30, they find it raided and plundered, their own city, their own place. And it, it actually turns David's men, David's people against him. And they, they talked of killing him. Now, like Saul, check this out. David is between a rock and a hard place. But unlike Saul, who consorted a witch, chapter 30, verse 6 says, David took refuge in the Lord his God. Finally, God gives them direction that they should follow and conquer the raiding band of Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites, some the same people group in some sense that Saul was supposed to wipe out. So David is in the deep south, if you will, and he has success in getting his family back, all, all the men and men's family, and they took great plunder. David shared that plunder not only with his men, but with groups in the area. And while David is having success down south, chapter 31 tells us that Saul is unsuccessful in the north against the Philistines. He ends up committing suicide after being wounded in battle. The Philistines find his body and the body of his sons, including his son Jonathan. Now this is a banner day for Philistia. I know we don't really relate necessarily, but the enemy king is dead, and that also means that the enemy god has failed. So the, the Philistines send messages to their own people, and they actually send messages to their temples with the good news. This is a great day for us. And they actually move in and occupy some of the areas right away that they, that they, plunder, that they uh, defeated. The Philistines also flaunt their victory by hanging the bodies of Saul and his sons on a prominent wall and defeated Israel. Now here at the very end of the book, you find some brave men who actually, I think they align themselves with David's worldview in respect for God's anointed. They travel, they take the bodies down, and they honorably dispose of them. Well, that brings us to the end of 1 Samuel and uh, as, we, as we land the plane, I, there, there's lots of points here in this narrative that we can meditate on, as always, that we could be challenged in, that we, we can look at, that should help us understand a little bit more about God and a little bit more about how we fit in with God. I think one of those is a challenge that lies in the life of David during this period of, of time. And especially as we contrast that to Saul, I think David displays, ponder this with me, I think David displays a heart of patient faith, patient faith. Now David's heart was for God, patiently trusting, patient faith in the timing for the kingship as well as just being free from the danger of death that was right around the corner for these years of time. Remember, David was constantly in danger, running for his life. He tried to stay out of Saul's way. Death was right there. Years of consistent pressure on his life. The most part of 14 years, remember, David was the object of Saul's hatred. David knew he was the anointed king that whole time. 
it wouldn't it wouldn't have been even unusual or surprising for David to take things into his own hands. I think in that culture, it would have been pretty expected even for David to take his opportunity and kill his enemy. Aside from the king anointing, do away with the danger. Even you notice there, we didn't point it out, but if you've read it, even David's buddies say to him, look, God has delivered our enemy into our hands. Let me run him through. Why didn't he take their advice? Why didn't he kill Saul when he had the chance? And he had multiple chances. I think it was a moral issue for David. David even felt some remorse in cutting off the corner of the robe of Saul. Why? This was the Lord's anointed, he kept saying. It was not in David's realm of responsibility to take his life. He knew that God had anointed Saul, even though Saul was extremely far away from where he should have been. And David would submit to that. David what did submit to that. He actually risked his life so many times and the lives of others in submission to that. Now, David didn't do it perfectly, did he? But I think he does demonstrate this patient faith. If you need a contrast, Saul's right there. He was on the other end of the spectrum. He consistently took things into his own hands. He didn't wait on God's method. Now, just because circumstances in our lives might allow something, just because it looks favorable, it doesn't mean that God has delivered our enemy into our hands. I think we too want to have that heart of patient faith. Patiently trusting God for his timing and not taking matters into our own hands. Doing the right thing even though we don't know the outcome. Now that's not easy, is it? Check out this origami. I think that's how you say that. This artwork designed by a man named Satoshi Kamiya. This if you can see it, it's, it's a mythological dragon complete with scales, feelers, claws, and horns. This thing is created out of a six foot by six foot single sheet of paper with no cuts, only folds. Apparently, the crease pattern is asymmetrical and yet produces a symmetrical model. And depending on your skill level, this might take you 60 hours of careful folding. Now, I don't know anything about this. My patient faith is very lacking when it would come to artwork such as this. But I do know for sure that some people have a lot more patience. <laughs> and maybe you could say faith as well. That something is actually being created. Something is actually taking place through all these little tiny bitty random folds. Patient faith. Now, where do we need to practice patient faith? In our day-to-day, -day, practical sort of ways, you can probably come up with some. I think we see some of that in David in an extreme way, maybe. Although, for us, we're not likely going to have to withhold ourselves from spearing our enemy. But what, are, what, other, what other areas that, what, that we might face that we need patient faith in? 
How about some of these? I need these too, by the way. This is this speaks directly to me. How about points of anxiety and fear in our life? Maybe it surrounds things such as illness or family pressures or financial things or the security of the nation or the the government or simply the unknowns of tomorrow. There's lots of those. Chuck Swindoll has said, true patience is waiting without worrying. I think patient faith is applicable in the areas of anxiety and fear that we face. Someone else has said, a person is not a hero or is a hero, not because they are braver than anyone else, but because they are brave for 10 minutes longer. Patient faith. You know, sometimes I think we want to avenge ourselves in life. There might be times when we, we want to take action because of injustice done to us and wrong done to us. Now, there are times when we should take actions, but action, but Romans 12, 19 reminds us, it says, friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So in patient faith, let's let God avenge us. Maybe along those lines is, is righting a wrong somehow or correcting someone. And there's times for that, but sometimes we speak hastily. Maybe we speak in anger. We're, we're lacking love. We, we want to change someone or correct something or fight for fairness. Again, maybe patient trust. Wisely evaluating Perhaps nothing needs to be said in certain situations. Patient faith, letting it be God's problem. You ever been between a rock and a hard place? I think we all find ourselves there some, in some way at some point, don't we? Probably our natural tendency is to fight and to wiggle and to struggle and fall deeper between the rock and the hard place. Someone has said people are like tea bags. You have to put them in hot water before you know how strong they are. David was in hot water. He, he wrote in, in Psalm 62, 7, My salvation and glory depend on God. My strong rock, my refuge is in God. So when you find yourself stuck between a rock and a hard place, remember God is the rock. He's the refuge. Don't be Saul when times are tough and turn to humanistic options. Patiently trust. Anybody have any dreams? I think patient faith applies here. Again, David in Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, patient faith doesn't negate responsibility and good action, but it does the right thing, and we can trust our dreams to the Lord as we do the right thing, and we trust in Him, as we delight in Him. God will bring about those dreams. We don't need to take it into our own hands. It might be a while. It might be a while. What else? What else is patient faith good for 
in our life. I think you can probably think of something that you need patient faith in. I know I can. So let's remember that patient faith allows God to have his way in our life. And that's the best way. Don't give up. Don't take matters into your own hands. God won't leave you, but you won't have the best way. Patiently trust in Him. I wanted to remind you that if you want prayer with the elders, there will be a couple elders after the service up here. And J.D. is going to lead us in a final song, but let's ask God to help us as we Try to patiently wait on him. Father, thank you that you are so patient and good with us and you will not leave us. We know that. And you want us to take action in the sense of patiently waiting, looking to you, letting your timing be the right timing, trusting in you. That is not hard, not easy to do, but we can do it. And you will always be trustworthy. Thank you for that. Thank you for the example of David. Even though his life was on the line, he would not take the spear in his hand and kill Saul. And you rewarded that. You worked it out and you protected him. Just pray, God, for each one here as we face, maybe it's one of these five things or maybe it's number six. What is number six? The things that we face in our life that you would help us, God. We need your help. We need your reminders. We need your word to patiently wait on you. I just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.